this movie is such a hidden gem. Guys, I didn't I've never heard of this. And I've never listened to Talking Heads really either. So I've listened to Talking Heads a little bit. Um we'll talk more about David Byrne uh throughout the show, I'm sure. But yeah, this is I didn't know he made a film. That no. was totally news to me. I didn't know the story again, we we on mic were learning about this film as Arthur was telling us uh last week that this was Keith's pick. And once again, uh much like his his Fallen Angels pick. Uh, obviously, we were aware of Wong Kar Wai. Uh, we're all uh, fans of his in some capacity when Keithan gave us that film. Uh, but man, this is another just like thank you. What a great, what a great pick! Man, it's a really, really solid pick. So again, hello everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. Um, this week, it's a special ex- uh, exemplary, or I don't know, exceptional episode in which we have a patreon pick thank you keithan lane smith for your patronage and you uh because of the amount of money you give which is what fifteen dollars fifteen dollars or more is yeah. what we get to that okay so when you do that you get to pick a movie two movies uh, movie a year movie a year but you also get like a random blu-ray shipped to you uh quarterly yep um and uh, all the bonus content including Oh, good trash archdiocese. That's right. Which is now live over on Patreon. That's right. You can hear Dustin and I get to know, uh, build our characters, get to know each other in character, and then go on uh, the the first leg of our current mystery together. That's all on Patreon.com forward slash GTM right now. I think that's three dollars a month if you want all the unfettered access to that. But uh, episode zero is live on the main feed on iTunes and, and Stitcher Radio. Um, so that's there if you want to listen to it now. But yeah, if, if you're into that, uh, Patreon.com forward slash GTM. Thanks for setting Arthur and I up for that plug, Dustin. Very cool, very cool. So anyway, um, thank you again, uh, Keithan, uh, for your patronage. Um, I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. So make sure those introductions are made at some point. And now, can I ask you guys something? Do you think I could pull off uh, Dalton Exotic? Dalton Exotic. Yeah, or Exotic Dalton. You think <laughs> not, not options for me? I mean... As your dancing name or what? Yeah, you're right. It just sounds like a dancer. It doesn't sound like a Tiger King. It does not. No. Nope, All right. Well, it's something I wanted to try out. Okay. Well. Thanks for helping me workshop that. <laughs> You're no problem, buddy. Uh, look, if there's anything that we can say right off the top about true stories, though, is it's a, it's a film that encourages you encourages you to find your true self. Uh, I don't know. I was just trying to say something profound. Does it? <laughs> no. I, I feel it's a little nihilistic. Um, I'm not sure. Well, that's an interesting place to start things know. off. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Keith and paid for us to talk about this. And, Dustin, why don't you tell people how we talk about movies on this show so in case this you've never listened. So, this is a review show, not an analysis show. No, no, the other way around. It's an analysis show, not a review show. There you um, go. One job. Well, golly, you know, I've been saying it for, I don't know, 10 years now. I'm going to get it backwards every once in a while. Um, it's an analysis show, and that does mean we're going to spoil the movie. However, we're going to avoid that towards until we get towards the end of the show. So we'll have a thumbs up, thumbs down set of reviews, which will be relatively spoiler free. We'll move on into expanding the syllabus, which might be vaguely more spoiler full. And then once we get down to business, um, then um, we will do all the spoiling that we possibly can at that point, or at least enough to make sure that we can make our particular um, points of analysis. So there you go, dear listener. You've been warned. Well, and this isn't really a narrative-driven film per se, so spoilers this week are going to be more, we can't really talk about how this film feels or what it does. We're going to be vague a little bit, I think, to stay totally spoiler-free. But yeah, not really a narrative film, so uh, there's nothing really to spoil for you other than what the experience of watching it is like, I guess. Yeah, I think that totally checks out. So there you go, dear listener. Let's begin with the synopsis of the film, though. Um, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon has prepared one of those, or stolen one, one or the other, and we'll hear that at this time. Yeah, uh, this is from IMDb. 
uh, from uh, Daniel. Uh, he says uh, he sums it up as a small but growing Texas town filled with strange and musical characters celebrates its sesquicentennial and converges on a local parade and talent show. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Sesquicentennial is sesquicentennial sequestered centennial. There you go. Is the weirdest <laughs> number for a hundred and fifty year anniversary ever. I just I've never heard that before in my life. Sesquicentennial. Yeah, that was a new watch centennial. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just, sorry, I got really excited for a second. Sequestered centennial is what we're going to have at our next celebration because we're all going to be locked inside our houses. I know, right? An equestra centennial is uh, where you get a hundred horses together and make them tap dance. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So there let's just go. give our initial reactions. Dalton, do you like true stories? Well, I, I have two thoughts right up top. Uh, number one. I Could Love You Like a Color TV is an all-time great pop, like alt-pop music lyric. It's great. I love it. Two, I hate now that I have to be a guy who knows where uh, Radiohead got their name from. Oh, yeah. I don't like knowing that. I wish I could unknow that. Uh, but if that's if I have to have that piece of information as a trade-off for having seen, having seen this film, I'll take it. It's from a guy called Ramon grabbing your nose and knowing the tones. He's got a Radiohead. I'm just saying. That's that, kind of fantastic. That, exactly. If I have to know that knowledge, it's okay because I got to see this movie, and that's really how I feel about it. Uh, seriously, I, I am glad Keith and picked this because I love singular things like this, uh, and that's often my go-to adjective when I can't like really put my thumb on what it is I like about a movie. Um, is just calling it a singular thing, and I, I really do feel like True Stories fits that bill quite well. Uh, there's just not a whole lot like it. It is a live-action music video, or a, a feature-length music video. It's a a rock opera. It's uh, a story of Americana. It is just a again a feature length music video. It is a series of vignettes. It's uh, it's an anthology film. It's so so many things, and yet none of the things that I have just listed. It, it is kind of its own own thing, and it, it's so interesting to see a film that exists almost only because David Byrne was the coolest person in the world in 1986. Uh, he had a concert movie that everybody liked. He didn't even direct it. He just had a lot of conversations with Jonathan Demme, who directed Stop Making Sense, like was involved in the creative process of that show. Uh, and it made enough money. and People liked enough that Warner Brothers was just like, hey, David Byrne, make a movie for us. And that rules. Uh, I'll go ahead and in this review section mention some of the production things that I learned because I thought it was interesting. Uh, so David Byrne's on tour with Talking Heads and starts collecting tabloids and stuff as he's in middle America uh, and comes to Stephen Tobolowsky and... Oh, Stephen's wife, whose name is Beth Henley. Beth Henley, thank you. Uh, also, Tobolowsky uh, comes to them, says, "Hey, what if all of these tabloids were true stories? Write me a screenplay." They give it to him, uh, and he turns it into something entirely different, but gives them credit because he doesn't want it to be, uh, you know, look like a vanity project. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he just has a specific idea he wants to impart about what if all of the weird uh, ephemera of Middle America was true? What does that place look like? Where does it exist? And I just think the the tale of how this film came to be, uh, the tale of it uh, becoming a cult, kind of a VHS classic, a rental classic for a number of decades before it kind of just became a, an internet oddity. Uh, it's just a fascinating tale, and that, that's why I wanted to bring it up, because again, I think it ties back into that uh, that singularity of it, that nothing else-ness of it. Uh, so again, don't normally do that kind of how did this come to be stuff when we're talking reviews, but it just felt like worth mentioning uh it, it is hard to describe this film as i've already said as, as really more than anything but uh, a vibe and an experience um but but there is a lot here 
just in terms of w- what this film wants to say about middle America, about Americana, uh, about uh, regular folk who make stuff r- without any real concern about whether or not anybody ever sees it. It, it does have some interest in like the folk art situation of the middle of the country, the stuff that never makes it to the coasts. Uh, you know, we spend so much time talking about what is made in cultural centers and how long it takes to filter out into the world. Uh, in this film, and David Byrne seems concerned with how does the art that gets made in the middle of the country filter out, uh, which is, again, a less of a concern usually. Um, but again, it, it, it is such a specific picture of a, of a place. And, you know, you hear David Byrne from Maryland makes a, a film about uh, a fictional city in Texas, and you go, well, that could go one of two ways. And much as we discussed when we were talking about Tiger King and that documentary crew, like having care for this part of the country, I feel like uh, this film does as well. I think, I think da- it's generous. Yeah, I yeah. think it's incredibly generous. I think it's um, enamored, if anything else. I, I think uh, David Byrne really does seem invested in uh, trying to evoke a feeling, even if he's not trying to tell the literal truth. He is trying to do that, that Werner Herzog ecstatic truth I don't think thing. he's caring about the truth at all, considering one of the characters. Well, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I, yes, I think you're absolutely right, and yet then that complicates it, right? Yeah, I think we'll talk more about the character of the lying woman later and what she represents as this character of tall tales in a film based on tabloid tall tales and such. Uh, but again, uh, yeah, I, I uh, th- this film very easily could have been making fun or rolling its eyes, and it is very sincere uh, and very aesthetically precise. Yes. Uh, there is a lot of art direction uh, going on in this film, and every bit of it, every bit of costuming, every bit of set design, every performance from every actor, a lot of actors from this part of the country. Man, if you were thinking, you know what, I, I just would love to have a film stacked to the gills with all of uh, my favorite character actors from the middle of the country, uh, circa the mid-'80s, boy, howdy, has this movie got you covered. Uh, yeah, I, I just it, it is so enamored with trying to do one thing do it very specifically, do it very well, and uh, I love it. All right, very good, very good. What do you think, Arthur? Do you like true stories? I do like it. I, um, I like Dalton said, the kind of singularity, I, I don't, you know, when, as soon as it's kind of started and maybe about 15, 20 minutes in, I couldn't think of anything else I'd seen like it. It, it feels very much its very own uh, product, and, and I, I love that kind of originality that it, it has. Um, David Byrne himself, you know, I'm, I'm not really familiar at all with the Talking Heads. It's a name I know, but I don't know that I've ever listened to their music unless it just happened to be on, and you know, I wouldn't have been able you to know attribute a of tracks. Yeah, um, and so him as a actor here uh, as the narrator, I, I think he has just got this uncanny charisma that really allows you to latch onto him and the things he is saying. And there's a very likable uh, factor to him, and, and also just this charm and just sweetness about his his persona in this, mm. in this movie um and to use that to kind of drive the narrative i think is is really key and i love john goodman i i, I think he's mm. one of the oh. greats um oh. I, he's one of my favorite actors i love seeing him show up and just about anything he's perfect in this man yeah and he's so flexible and he's so nimble as a, as a performer and and to see him here he's, he's just still in the show and i love it uh, i love to see him doing it i consistently maintain the shape of a panda and I love myself. <laughs> and I love myself. I'm the dancing bear. Um, <laughs> he's, he's just so good. He's so great. He so, seems like such a sweetheart. Um, but yeah, the, the production design, uh, this kind of artifice that's designed, everything looks like it's on a set and everything looks 
fake and flimsy, and, and I, I kind of like that. I think it heightens the the anti-realism of the film. And I, I didn't know so much as to say that it was surreal, but I thought more of the anti-realism of mm. the British cinema in, in the mm-hmm. late, like a 60s and 70s. Right, 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 yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I like those things about it. I do feel like it's a little meandery sure. at a point, and so I was kind of getting in and out of it towards the the middle. It's kind of um, kind of the weakness of any vignette or anthology, right? Yeah, if, if you don't have a constant hook, I think, with each. And, and it, it's, it's, it's weird as an anthology because it's... Not an anthology, but it is an anthology, and there are vignettes, but they aren't. It's a weird structure, sure. like you mentioned. It, it's, yeah. it is, but it isn't. And it's a fascinating project, I think. And, and viewing it as a project, I, you know, I'm kind of blown away just by that of it. And, and as a story, as a as a movie, it's it gets a little meandering for me. It's hard to kind of focus. But I, I love, I love the what the wild wild life. Oh, wild wild life, so good. Mm-hmm. And that, that moment is so great when they're doing the the. Lip sync, lip sync. Yeah, it's, it's probably one of my favorite moments in the film. Keithan actually asked me, uh, and maybe this is a good time to mention it since we're in review. Arthur, uh, he asked me when we were we were texting what my favorite sequence was. Uh, is wild wildlife probably your definitely, definitely yeah? I, I think, Same. I feel like it kind of creatively peaks there. Yeah. I, I, I Interesting. I, I love wild wildlife too. I actually love uh, love for sale, which is the song the, that lyric "I could love you like a color TV" comes from. Is that the music video she's watching in bed? Yeah, that's uh, where we get the uh, the lazy woman played by yeah. uh, Swoozy Kurtz, uh, who I first saw in Bubble Boy. Uh, love her a lot. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably my favorite. I like the uh, this kind of kitschy, knowing use of product placement. The this idea of like pop love and like how the artificiality of a color TV can be a kind of like pure love. Like again, that lyric, the lyrical content of that song, the upbeatness of it, Swoozy Kurtz dancing with just her neck and head, uh, and like eating from a, a robot, like a robot's feeding her and turning the pages of her book. Like it's just a we. I love it. I love that number. I also really like the, uh, the dinner sequence uh, with the lobster. Yeah. With the spalding really, gray. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's I a good that's one. That's really interesting as well. I love that one. Yeah. But, uh, Anyway, anyway, yeah, Wild Wild Life, great. Yeah, that's that's kind of where it pigs for me. But um, I think that you know, just it's it's a fascinating project. I love kind of seeing these weird original takes and, and playing with the art form itself mm-hmm. and getting an outside mind. I think someone who comes from a completely different medium and, and letting them just have this kind of free reign to to try something unique is very special, and we just don't get to see it very often. Um, you, I'm sure there are those films, but they just don't get the notoriety, you know, especially as many movies are produced now that more people have access to making film. Um, but you know, something like this in 86, I think it's fascinating. So very cool. Very cool. Well, I mean, this is a movie about the small town, but it's also just slightly wrong. Well, it's about the idea of a small town, right? Right. As much as it is about small towns, but all, but, but broken, like there's something just not, there's the, the off kilter, slightly just out of step, out of beat, version of the small town yeah right yeah. yeah well and i think the the scene that arthur mentioned the, the dinner table scene where uh, the, the husband will never talk to the wife yeah 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 it's crazy economics <laughs> has become a spiritual experience i think he says yes his his uh physical body and, and mannerisms and pantomiming do not seem as excited about the world he's describing as like uh, his physical description of what he's talking about does not match his words like there's this in, incongruity there i love it yeah, I love it. it. You're it, absolutely right. There's something wrong, and everybody knows it, and nobody knows how to put how their, 
their finger on it. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, I'll tell you about two of my other favorite pieces of media. I love Welcome to Night Vale. You do. You also love Twin Peaks. And I love Twin Peaks. And so, yeah, I mean, that that's where I come down. This is right up your alley. Of course I love true stories. Of course this is perfect. Of course it's wonderful. And all of its weirdness, and, and again, it's very aesthetic. You know, it's not just simply like a weird small town kind of thing where everybody's got their quirks, and you can have a, your Herman Munster over here, mm. and you're sort of like quasi Ted Bundy over there. Or whatever. I mean, you know, you could do a number of things. The lady who always eats newspapers is over there. I mean, you know, you could write this thing badly. Sure. Uh, but it, it's aesthetic in, in a way that really does sort of tune in with David Lynch, which very much tunes in uh, with Matthew Craner and the rest of the crew there at Welcome to Night Vale in a way that, yes, I mean, I'm not going to say anything more because you guys have said everything This already. is on the coaching tree of things that you already like. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm there for it. I did not know it existed. So I'm just going to say at this point of the show for review purposes, thank you, Keithan. There you and go. That's all I want to say. So there you go, dear listeners. Those are our thoughts. They're mostly pro regarding true stories. Let's expand the syllabus. So you're teaching this thing as a class. How do you do it? I ask you first, Arthur. Yeah, so I'm going to call this one Small Towns Deep Reflections. Uh, I want to start with a article uh, called uh, – why did it put me at the bottom of the link? That's nice. Um, it's a Wonderful Life, Representations of the Small Town in American Movies, uh, mm. Thomas Halper and Douglas Muzio. Um, it's kind of looking at, the, I think, the tropes and the, the function of setting a, a movie against small-town America. And I, I think it does open up a fascinating dynamic and you know the, the kind of culture that can build and be designed within a small town is usually much different than what you would see in a urban center or something sure. like that. Um, so that's, that's where I would start with as, as far as reading. Uh, and then I just kind of want to work through some small town movies. Uh, I'd start with Bogdanovich and the last picture show. Um, I, I, to me, it's one of the great coming of age movies and it's one of the great small town movies. It's, yeah. it's a fascinating look at that small town, Texas life and, and just a gorgeous film um, that really navigates, you know, a, a very realistic look at small town America. And then from there, I want to get a little, uh, little kitchen and have a little fun. I want to look at uh, footloose and roadhouse. Hell nice. yeah. Hell yeah. Um, both, which are just these high genre pieces that elevate or that operate within the small town and, and still have a very, I think reasonable and honest approach and look yeah. at the people and the types of people and archetypes of the people who live in small towns, even though they are larger than life and skewed and, and silly. But, you know, yeah. I think about the kind of government portrayed in roadhouse and then the kind of pol politics that are operating in the back burner that drive the, the narrative. And I think of, you know, same with footloose, the kind of re religion yeah. in that regard. They're, they're both films that get yeah, kind of mythologize the, the old West town that never stopped being an old West town yeah. in some regards. Yeah. This, this, these places that are, so American, they exist as islands under themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then finally, I'd probably close it out with Blue Velvet. I, I think nice, go back nice, to David yeah. Lynch and, and, you know, talking about small town suburbia and talking about the American dream and, and what's really going on behind the scenes and under the under the hedges and, and things of that nature. And I think that would be the way to kind of round that out, that, that section of the course. Very cool. Very cool. What are you going to do for your class, Dalton? I I haven't decided what kind of class this is yet. I don't know if this is just a, uh, a media studies in general class, if this is a film class. Um, so I, I'm a little up in the air on that still. But I, I think this is a class that's going to be uh, not necessarily focused on small towns as, as Arthur's was, but it is going to kind of look at the portrayals of middle America within fiction. But it is also going to kind of look at that through the lens of 
uh, of the vignette. Uh, so it's it's going to be kind of a, a wide sweeping class. I think we'll probably start with true stories. Uh, we'll start with uh, an interview uh, that I just read uh, from a couple, maybe a year or two ago, that David Byrne did. Uh, he's he's famously has his publicist, I guess, tell people don't like ask me about past stuff. Like that's a big thing of his. Uh, he doesn't like to do nostalgia interviews, but he did. He, you know, made one movie, so he's I imagine he's quite proud of it. And as part of the Criterion release to do an interview that I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an essay uh, in the the uh, Criterion uh, release of this. Um, I don't know if there's multiple essays or just the one, but I, I read an essay. If there's multiple ones, we'll read those too. But I, I think kind of looking into the production history of this film and like what sort of story David Byrne was trying to tell, what he was wanting to do with this 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 film, uh, I think is kind of important for setting the, the framework of this class. So moving on from there, uh, I, I think we're going to look at uh, Patterson, uh, the Jim Jarmusch film. Very uh, cool. Yeah. yeah, another film that uses twins. Uh, twins get used within uh, True Stories uh, as kind of this marker of, of the weird, uh, not even the weird, the the, mun- the, the the mundane within the weird, or the weird like within the, the mundane. mundane uncanny almost. Yeah, the yeah. mundane uncanny is a great, great way to put it. And Patterson plays with that, that recurring usage of twins as well. Um, and Patterson, while following, you know, one character more than anybody else, unlike this film, you know, John Goodman's probably the lead of this film, uh, or, you know, David Byrne is the narrator, maybe they're co-leads. Patterson is very centrally, Adam Driver is the central character, but it, it it's a film that allows room to breathe. You know, he's doesn't have a lot of repeat interactions, uh, other than the, his character of his girlfriend, who he lives with. Um, you know, the, I can't think of the actor's name, but the, uh, wonderful actor who plays Chidi on The Good Place, uh, also shows up in Midsommar. He's in this. He's maybe one of the only characters that shows up for more than two scenes. But uh, it is very much set around a series of interactions and conversations and just following uh, a week in the life of this guy, Patterson, who's a bus driver who writes poems. Uh, And again, I think using that in conjunction with true stories kind of lets you look at, well, a vignette doesn't have to be totally disconnected. A series of vignettes can tell a larger narrative. So I think that's going to be a good one to look at in terms of that that mundane uncanny and as well as a different way for vignettes to function. I think we'll also look at uh, the the David Payne... Wait, did Dave Payne? That's not his name. Uh, Alexander Payne. There we go. Uh, Film Nebraska. Ah, yeah. uh, Which is another middle-of-the-country film. A lot of Alexander Payne's films. He's from Nebraska. About Schmidt would be there, yeah. About Schmidt. Well, I mean, even Election and, like, all Mm -hmm. all of his films that are set in the Midwest. Um, And, you know, I think we'd probably spend a lot of time talking about the debate around Payne's Midwestern characters, whether or not they are jokes, whether or not they are realistic. Uh, I think we probably entered the Coen brothers into this conversation, too. I think we're going to focus more on Payne than the Coens. You know, the Coens talk about Middle America a lot, but they're New York guys, right? Or they're East Coast guys, I think. Don't know for sure. Uh, I don't think they're... Well, there you go. I might be wrong on this. So if that becomes relevant, but I think they're characters from things like Raising Arizona and No Country... While those are not really in our vignette purview, I think we'll probably talk about the Coens in terms of the depiction of quote-unquote flyover people, uh, you know, the people from the middle of the country. So I think they'll be useful with Nebraska. Uh, uh, And again, they have a lot of vignette films. I think we'll also look at the film uh, 20th Century Women in terms of, uh, I can't remember the name of that director's film, but he also is uh, the director of Beginners with Christopher Plummer. Uh, and uh, Ewan McGregor, but I love the film 20th Century Women with Annette Bening uh, and yeah, Greta Gerwig, and just a great cast all around. But uh, it's a film very much about time and place. Uh, it's a little bit more traditionally uh, narrative and linear, but again, it is kind of structured within a series of conversations and vignettes, and sections of the film are dedicated to different women in the protagonist's life. Uh, this, this 
uh, young boy based on the director who's living with his mother and this series of kind of vagabonds and artists and cool people that come live with him and his mom. Um, so again, a- another film that is, while not as heavily structured on vignette or, or structured around vignettes, um, is very much kind of concerned with everyday life mm-hmm. and like showing a specificity of time and place. Uh, so I really think that's going to be a useful one. And this is going to require some homework on my part, but uh, I think Ro- Robert Altman's Nashville uh, is uh, noted as an influence on this film, both by people who are fans of it and David Byrne himself. I guess Nashville, uh, to my knowledge, is kind of structured around a pageant uh, as kind of like the big f- finale uh, of that film and what's structured around. So that would require some homework for me, but I think that would be useful. Uh, I also think uh, another former uh, Patreon pick from Keith and Fallen Angels, the one car wife film, which I've already mentioned, is a series of two vignettes but are also about a very specific time and place, Hong Kong, right at the turn of a government handover. Um, so I think that's going to be really useful for just talking about, again, time and place, specificity, how we try to shine a light on a culture within a larger global culture. Uh, and finally, I think we're going to look at uh, Love This Giant, uh, an album from uh, David Byrne and St. Vincent. The two of them did it together. Uh, St. Vincent, uh, better love known her. as hey, Love Her, uh, Oklahoma's own. Uh, born in Tulsa. I didn't know that. Yep, born in Tulsa, grew up in Dallas. Uh, so I think that's a great place to end. Is David Byrne making this film about Dallas and its surrounding areas? To end on that with uh, you know this album where he that he made with somebody that's about our age, that's somebody that probably might have seen uh, true stories on VHS, you know, in the mid '90s, uh, and been influenced by it as an artist. I think that's going to hmm. be an interesting look. Like, what is a you know later part of his career established pop? Uh, culture god david byrne working with up and coming uh you know heralded as a genius uh saint vincent uh a person who comes from the same place that true stories comes from right what does that look like what is that musically how does that musically pair up with this film how does that uh exploration of culture uh come into play yeah i think there's a lot of cool conversations we can have in this class it's it's kind of uh unstructured at this point i think there's some more wheels uh that could be put on it to figure out what it exactly looks like but yeah i think uh a, a study of midwestern pop culture uh or depictions of the south and the midwest and kind of using that uh we might even use magnolia too i mean that the paul thomas anderson film is a west coast movie but i think again the 90s and la uh, in terms of a time and a place and i think using interconnected vignettes uh, as opposed to disparate vignettes gives us some more conversation to have. So yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of how you can use a story that has no one central focus to really capture time and place effectively. Very cool. Very cool. I am more fascinated with the idea of the small town itself. And so I don't kind of similar to Arthur or uh, my, I don't, I, I think a little bit more um, just again, narrowed down to just the ways in which that has been represented and depicted and the ways in which we can sort of theorize that. And so there's an okay. anthology um, that I would assign alongside uh, um, True Stories, which is called The Small Town in American Fiction. And it's got some stories by John Updike mm-hmm. and by Flannery O'Connor and a handful. So kind of more delving into that realm of the Southern Gothic okay. a little bit. Um, the way in which we aestheticize the small town. Sure. And, and so the aesthetics itself are going to be really, really important, I think, for that. And so uh, that's going to be the literary um, sort of input. The uh, the visual input's going to be, obviously, true stories, a bit of Twin Peaks, mm. and then auditorially, we're going to listen to a little bit of Welcome to Night Vale. And then um, there's a collection of essays called She's Full of Secrets about Twin Peaks specifically, um, which has got a handful of essays in it. But in one of those, there's an essay that uh, dwells uh, really heavily on Jowls Deleuze and the detour... detour- 
deterritorialization. That's a hard word to say. That's a big word. Um, of the small town. And um, deterritorialization is like one of the big parts of Deleuze's theory. And this idea of the way in which you make this space a no space, but you also make it very specific. Mm. And the specificity is what universalizes it. And the ways in which you can see small town America in a movie like Nebraska or like Fargo or like Twin Peaks or like uh, True Stories. And even though it's very specifically... It's northwestern North Dakota, Nebraska, or Texas towns. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Patterson's a New Jersey movie, right? right? Yeah, like, yeah, there's a lot. I see what you're saying. And it somehow is able to make those specific towns every town you've sure. ever been okay. to. And so what is it about the small town that sort of makes it tick and makes it interesting for the work of art? It's interesting. I think all three of us are kind of tackling the same question of, like, what is it that David Byrne is fascinated with from like different angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost feels like we could actually team up for this one and maybe make it like a big intercession summer class. Like, yeah, kind of what this feels like. It could get because everything we've got is like a couple Connect- weeks. Yeah, yeah. and there's a, a connective tissue between I think all three of the works that we've selected. I will, I will, I will definitely make a requisition and see what we can get done. <laughs> oh hell yeah! Okay, all right. So very cool, very cool. There you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. Let's get down to business. Yes, business. Yes, indeed, that business is, as always, analysis. So, um, the thing I want to talk about sure. is Texas Instruments. Yeah. 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 And the superconductor and the weird ways in which industrialization changes the demography. Of yeah, we haven't even time. talked about Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, the AMC series with Lee Pace, another Oakley, uh, another Oki. Uh, but that's that's all about this. It's about the computing in the eighties and Texas yeah. Instruments and like yeah the what, what what's the Silicon uh, Prairie mm-hmm. yeah and, and all about that era. I know it moves other places after season one. That's where it starts. It's a do you know anything about that offhand that uh, no. is good context? I don't really either. No, uh, I just know that that is a thing that happened. Yeah, Texas Instruments and microprocessors were a big part of the Dallas economy in the eighties. Well, what I do know is this: is the specificity of the small town. Once again, sure, it, is that in a city you expect a, a certain amount of industrial commercial change. So um, Oklahoma City was once a cattle town. It became sort of a wheat trading town. And now, weirdly enough, it's a commercial residential um, sort of entertainment town. It's an oil and entertainment town. Yeah, yeah. Oil, yeah. Um, So there's like these weird transitions that have happened. And and nobody's like bemoans 75 Oklahoma City. Nobody is like, you know what? 1995 Oklahoma City. Nobody does that. But if you go out to the outskirts, you know, you go out to the rural parts of the country and you say, you know, this town was one way and then the prisons came in well, I, or I, the meatpacking plant. It's like the opposite of gentrification, right? Like mm-hmm. it's uh, they made our, you know, because you will find people pining for, you know, 2010 Oklahoma City, right? Like you'll find people who are like, eh, Bricktown was fine, but maybe we should have stopped after that, right? Oh, or yeah. they're like, maybe we should have even done that. Yeah. And it's like the opposite, right? The, it's the, the gentrification is they make our place nicer and ruin it for the people that are actually here. 
And then the small town thing is almost kind of an opposite. Well, it's, it's, it works both ways. I mean, it's, I, I yeah. do think you're right. The gentrification thing, there definitely is some pushback on that. But I think the overwhelming majority of voices are like, oh, you know, upward and onward. You know, the narrative is the that, narrative right? is yeah. there. Yeah, as but, opposed to in small towns where it's not in my backyard. Yeah, well, it's either not this big thing in my backyard, yeah. or oh no, I cannot believe all the farmers went away and now there's nobody left in my town. And, yeah, you know, the last gas station is about to close down. Yeah, and yeah. and so the way in which Change itself is dealt with as an adversarial role. It's the antagonist of a small town story is always change itself, mm, okay. it seems. Well, yeah. that, that kind of comes to uh, the last picture show, uh, the Bogdanovich film that Arthur mentioned. I have not, not seen it, but I know that like the, the simultaneous like co- constant of the small town and the forever changing of the small town are kind of big parts of that film. Yeah, uh, and uh, really, a lot of the films we've talked about. So you're, you're right, Dustin. There is something there about, you know, it's it is the the most American thing, right? The nostalgia for the before time when we were hardier, when we were tougher, when we were more reliant. Uh, you know, it's a very su- the southern United States, midwestern United States. Really, everything west of the original thirteen has some component of that. Ah, we used to be cooler. We used to be hardier. We used to be able to do for ourselves better. And it is an interesting kind of juxtaposition juxtaposition in terms of that gentrification argument versus that uh, they're always trying to take away our cool small town that doesn't need them. Right. Yeah, yeah. And again, I find it really, really kind of strange because, uh, the, the again, the way in which it works both ways. That sure. There, there, are, there are times when, you know, I mean, I've been in a lot of communities who say, oh, yeah, we had the – you know, we had the slaughterhouse here and they left, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and then the town sort of whittled, whittled down into yeah. nothing. But I also have these uh, situations where the prison, which is an industry, or the um, packing plant or whatever has moved in, and nobody works in these old ways that they once worked before. And so there's a seaboard farms, you know, in Guyman, Oklahoma now, um, mm-hmm. which is a big uh, pork um, raising, slaughtering, distribution um, you know, a factory farm. And that's ultimately changed the fundamental sort of economic substructure of the town. Sure. And uh, the, the city's growing, and everybody's very sad about that. As much as they would be if they're, you know, in 25 years when Seaboard leaves and the city starts shrinking, and everybody's very sad about that. that there's a way in which change itself is, again, just there's something about small town life culturally. That wants a, a, a sense of stasis. Well, well, they're setting their ways. I think. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. You you don't like outsiders, and you just you want to go about your daily routine. And a lot of people that stay in those small towns, that's you know, they've kind of accepted that that they're going to live there, get married there, and stay there, and raise their families there. It is interesting to kind of circle back to like the small town versus the city. It, it is a very similar American impulse of. We don't trust these carpetbaggers. We don't trust these people that are rolling in with new money and new ideas to change how we've been doing things because we've lived here for generations. And, and maybe these people it's because are they've left before. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, sure. Regardless of, what, again, whether it is a city or a small town, there is this component of the economics of America intreating on the ideals of America. I mean, that's, that's you know, God, if you've listened to the show, that's not a, an idea that is new to you. This is the kind of thing we talk about on the show all the time is those incongruities, like the, the American experience of simultaneously being one of uh, helping your neighbor, you know, be right and honorable and wear a white hat and also be a snake oil salesman and grift and cheat and lie and... Uh, build your empire with no regard to how it impacts others. And these two ideas are ideas that I think are fundamental to the American experience. And I think 
this idea of like the changing small town, uh, the small town where a new investor comes and buys your weird big cat zoo or uh, <laughs> Texas right. Instruments comes in, or, you know, whatever it is, th- there's always the, 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 that change, right? The, the time is the enemy because time is always the thing that's going to bring the change, whether that change is a, an industry that used to support the town going away or, you know, they, they put in a toxic waste dump. They, you know, whatever it is, there is always somebody, as again, Arthur said, there's an outsider. There's somebody who is there to change their way of life. And again, it's, I have never thought about this, this, uh, where the, the, the ideas of gentrification and the disappearing small town kind of line up together. Uh, it is not, again, not something I've ever considered, but it is something that, uh, true stories does kind of seem to understand because David Burns spends a lot of time in some of his monologuing being like, this is going to, not be like this forever right like his opening Mm -hmm. monologue is like isn't this cool isn't it cool how like wide open and spacious it is it's not gonna be like this forever look at this highway some people call it a cathedral not me uh like it it is it it is simultaneously like look at this cool place i found that everybody ignores that is already different than how it used to be um yeah it's a weird again it's not something we think about as being the, the, the same problem but it is sort of the same problem I think the next thing that sort of connects to this sort of, you know, I mean, the, the sort of economics of spirituality and that sort of dad's dinner party conversation. We'll yeah. talk about dad and mom not talking a bit more later, I think, because I think that relates very well to John Goodman's search for his wife. But uh, before we get to that, the the movie does seem to have a, a hard tack against the way in which uh, television culture has provided a uh, a gospel of consumerism for satisfaction. And I think it takes a strong line against it. This movie is very anti-consumerist, it seems to me, overall. Sure. You know, the, your, your color TVs are not going to make you happy. You know, it seems to be a major theme working throughout. Yeah, I, I mean, again, you've, you've got uh, Spalding Gray's kind of like, uh, we've already talked about this, but his, his incongruous uh, dance, hand dance that he's kind of doing while he's elaborating on what he's talking about. It's great stuff. But then, you know, we have the lazy woman who we already mentioned who is... Uh, uh, kind of seems intrigued by John Goodman's television ad, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Of his his singles ad that's on TV, uh, and she seems genuinely interested in him, right, as a romantic partner. Yet she does not remove herself from being glued to the television. Right. So you're absolutely right. But there is again that line: "I could love you like a color TV." There is this kind of acknowledgement that, like, and again, John Goodman's uh, character factors into this. There's almost this acknowledgement that. Uh, this thing you're being sold by TV, this happiness isn't a no ability. It isn't, it is a lie. It's, it's Don Draper trying to sell you the Kodak carousel, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just something you think is going to make you happy. Nothing's going to make you happy. Uh, and it does kind of pair that idea of, uh, uh, heteronormative coupling with that, uh, idea of like a consumer, consumerist happiness, consumerist pleasure, it is very wisely pairing these ideas. Well, he achieves his um, heteronormative coupling through marketing. That's what I was about to say. Like, yeah. there is an acknowledgement of the way these two things not only go hand in hand, both as lies, but both as, like, things that perpetuate each other and yet also do bring some small sense of, like, stability. Uh, I don't it, know. I think David Byrne anticipates Tinder is what I think. I think there's a lot. I mean, again, like, yeah, John Goodman's got the line, uh, right? He's, this is 19, you know, mid-80s. He's talking about how, like, the dating scene is already changing. Like, people are, you know, just kind of doing whatever they want. Like, yeah. this, just be, there are less assumptions about whether or not 
somebody wants to settle down based on their their gender, right? Like mm-hmm. there are people who don't want to settle down regardless of uh, of what society says. Like you know, he's some of the women are just as bad as the men. I think is his line. Like yeah. it's, but you're right. I, I think there is that's the line that does kind of anticipate uh, David Byrne anticipating Tinder a little bit, maybe. Well, that and just—I mean—you sell yourself. I'm like, yeah. Here I am. I'm a I'm a I'm a meat-eating, you know, red-blooded American man, and I'm looking for me a woman, you know, I, kind of stuff. I yeah. don't know. I think Goodman's character is a lot, and I, I think if that was the way Goodman's character was portrayed, I think I would be more in line with it. He is portrayed. I don't know, as that wholesome. wife wanted sort of liquor store sign in front yeah, of his house. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. I mean, there is a certain amount of like. Yeah, I don't know. I think he is a very wholesome character. Yeah, I, I think he's lonely, but it's again, he's realized that I'm going to have to market. I'm going to have yeah. to advertise. You know, the 8844 wife, call in, you know, if, only serious inquiries, you know. But again, I think people like us, the big kind of like showstopper number, right? Like, we spend this whole film working up to the talent show, and John Goodman's like, oh, I got a song that I'm working on. I'm a little nervous about it. Like, we, we build to this, and again, all all of these themes you're talking about are present throughout the film but i think when we get to people like us it is a open-hearted like fully felt plea for boring well no i i I agree i i think the marketing was a thing he had to sort of acquiesce to he was forced into it and i I I think about a 21st century single person who's Mm -hmm. lonely yeah they're gonna have to market themselves with the best photo well this is think about their bio and do their you know i mean you know and like sort of this is ramon this is radiohead this is everybody has a tone right Right. this is again i think this is where it's not so cut and dry in terms of like what david Byrne thinks right Uh, in terms Mm -hmm. or not even to take you know a tour theory out of it what the film thinks uh about like small town life about you know uh uh, cultural assumptions about you know heteronormative coupling and you know all this shit. It's more complicated than that. Like the film is gl- throwing a, a skewed glance at that of like where those impulses, where those cultural like assumptions come from. It's simultaneously casting that side eye and also going, yeah, but this works for some people. Mm-hmm. Like again, everybody has a tone. Everybody has some vibe that they are trying to radiate out radiate out into the world and signal to other people this is who i am this is what i'm about just like you said it is that that proto like knowledge of tinder this idea that we are trying to sell ourselves to each other what is that only farmers.com yeah what is that is, is it called only it's Farm- only only farmers only farmers.com yeah. yeah very niche yeah so anyway i was just thinking that about uh, out loud um though here's the other thing that i wanted to think about with this movie um the the conversations between men and women the way in which um there is a desire for love and discussions of love, but the most words about love are spoken by the lying woman, A, mm-hmm. while uh, assembling um, microcircuits there at the factory. Sure. And uh, then the couple, you know, presumptively in love, can't speak to each other. Okay. And then John Goodman is in this place where he's got to talk, marketing talk, which is, you know, present the truth, maybe, but package it as well as you possibly can. Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna say John Goodman's lying because I do think you're right. I think he's a very kind-hearted, sort of open-hearted character. Yeah. But also at the same time, he's got to figure out how to package that, putting his best foot forward, sure. which is you know to elide that which is most objectionable and to put forward that which is most you know sort of interesting. He's very fashionable. And and he looks great. He does look great. Man, he, that, that leisure suit is fly. <sighs> that suit crushes. Yeah, I love it. But it, I, it is the it is the antithesis of the lying woman, right? It's seeking the same validation, but like 
through honesty. Yeah. Right? Through, or at least the honest, as honest as a, a marketing pitch can be. <laughs> but I wonder if the movie's not suggesting something pretty cynical about romance in general. I don't know. Again, I think it's that kind of film that uh, it is deliberately open to interpretation, right? Um, I think it has a very cynical view. And again, it ends on, you know, David Byrne's character, the narrator, saying, oh, it's time to leave. You know, I stopped noticing things. And there is something there about the idea of settling down, whether that is geographically or romantically, the idea of settling down is a certain amount of accepting that you are going, you are deliberately saying, I, I consent to losing magic, right? I, I, I consent to something that seems miraculous now becoming mundane. And yeah, you're right. There is something cynical there, but there is a certain amount of like forlornness, right? In, in that song, both that, that final monologue of like, ah, it's time for me to leave and move on with my life. And then going into city city lights, what's it called? The name of that last song? Ooh, I don't know. Off the city top of my lights. Head. Uh, ooh, I, I can't remember off the top of my head either. But it's it's one of my favorites. I think it might actually be my favorite song in the mm-hmm. film. But it be you know it kind of pairs with that final monologue uh, by by being about you know uh, the Indians who are from here had a legend. I can't remember Man, the exact that opener lyrics. there is great too. The sort of oh like bookends that right, dude. Yeah, the the slideshow on the history of Texas rules and is so important for like setting the stage of what this film is about because it is very much about the idea of Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Virgil, Texas, not a real place. If you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, yeah, it is very much about like the idea of a place. Um, but no, I, I, I don't know, man, there, there is something about that final song city of dreams. That's what it's uh, called. There you go. Uh, yeah. Again, th- this idea of, the children of the children of the children of colonizers, right? The people who like know that they come from a place that's a lie and yet can't. Again, it speaks to me very deeply and primally as somebody that's from this part of the country. Uh, that final song like really got me misty, but I think it, it, it goes along with what you're talking about, right? Is that cynical? Is it, uh, pining? Is it both? I don't know. I think I think it's yeah, both. I, and. I, I, yeah, it definitely walks a certain sort of emotional yeah, tightrope yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, in terms of tone as a film. Um, are there any other major themes that you were thinking about wanting to talk about regarding um, true stories? Well, I mean, you did already mention uh, both the the husband and wife who don't talk, which is maybe kind of a good place to move on from what we're talking about. We were also talking about uh, economics has become a spiritual thing. I think those are two things we might be able to, or you know, work as a lifestyle. Um, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with that. Uh, we can talk about that if you want to go before we close. We can I also mean, just talk about the design consistency, the aesthetic consistency of the film. I was going to say the economics of spirituality thing. I mean, clearly it's vacuous. Clearly Spalding is wrong. And he yeah. clearly knows subconsciously he's yeah. wrong. Right? Like the way he's just shaking this lobster around, like he knows it's bullshit. And yeah. that, that's where that kind of sort of consumerism does not equal happiness, right? It, it, that, which is an earlier thing that we discussed already. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that, you know, throughout the film. And then that's where its cynicality comes from, I think. Uh, him and the lying woman, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is that, that trying to put the, uh, the sexiest label on it. Uh, you know, people see that, they know it, they smell it, they ferret it out, and they, they roll their eyes at the lying right. woman. And I think the contrast between the lying woman and John Goodman's character is, I mean, John Goodman's character is totally marketing in the same way that she is. He's just being honest. Yeah, but she's, you know, she's snake oil and he is, okay, you know, there are things you wouldn't like, but I'm, he could say, 
I'm fat like a warthog, but he says I'm fat like a panda bear, right? Yeah. And and, and um, so it's it, it's a, it's a thing about verbiage, right? Sure. As opposed to I once sold my prehensile tail to LBJ's Secret Service agent, <laughs> you know, or whatever. It's a thing about comfort, right? Mm-hmm. Like John Goodman is comfortable in his own skin, uh, and she's not. And yeah. Exactly. There it is. And I mean, I think that that's a a great attribute of any solid John Goodman performance, but of this one especially, it's a guy who is like shy. But also comfortable, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a hard line to walk at, in terms of performance. I think he does a great job. Yeah. You're right. It is the antithesis of the lying woman. Do you have any further thoughts on the uh, the husband and wife who don't talk, Dustin? Other than, like, again, it does... She, she's the one, as we haven't mentioned, does kind of lead the specialness pageant before the talent yes. show. Uh, and those very, very specifically designed costumes that uh, kick a lot of ass. And, are, again, I mean, it's stuff we've been talking about since uh, expanding the syllabus, right? The... The suits that look like gray brick walls and her her monologue that she's doing uh, half singing, half talking throughout this this presentation. Yeah, this Yeah, fashion show, yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. again, there, there's all kinds of, uh, again, like uh, secret uh, emotional truths being revealed in her dialogue and her singing, right? Right. Uh, the thing I, I – uh, there's a certain cynicality about the institution of marriage, it seems. Yeah, he doesn't seem super interested in her very cool pageant, which mm-hmm. uh, the narrator, David Byrne, is like, oh, I thought it was great. And I don't think she's very interested in his sort of, you know, economic theories. You yeah. Know? So, like, they've both just sort of taken different tracks in life and have just agreed to, since we don't have anything to talk about, we just won't talk. Stay together for the kids. Yeah. It, just, it seems to be that sort of small-town southern sort of sadness, right? Yeah. I mean, there's one of those essays in the uh, She's Full of Secrets where it says when the family romance uh, ends in family violence might connect to some of that. Like, there's a rest of the story in which, you know, she does them all in and she does it with an axe, you know. It, it is call, kind of almost uh, uh, another example of, you know, the, the the parallels between John Goodman and The Lying Woman, right? Those are kind of synthesized in that relationship. That's a relationship built on two people who are just agreeing to, to a lie, mm-hmm. um, whatever that lie looks like for them, whether it's I care about economics or I, you know, I, I care about fashion or I don't care that my husband doesn't care about my very cool fashion show that is very clearly like kind of cynical, kind of satirical, kind of knowing about the facade of the small town life. Like uh, it's a very winking like, again, the costumes and the music of that sequence itself are very knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it is kind of a, an amount of like an agreed upon lie or a half lie, half truth. Yeah, it's 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 weird, man. I, again, the, there's a lot in this movie. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm sure if we, I, I don't know about you guys. As soon as it ended, I, I did kind of want to go back and watch it again. Well, I think you know, yeah. you mentioned the the agreed upon lie. I think that's where the lying woman's character comes in the most importantly. No one ever calls her out. Yeah. Even when she's lying in church to the crazy conspiracy theorist preacher guy. <laughs> Love that guy. Man, Love that, that guy. That sequence is a hoot. That whole, man, the whole second half of this movie is more 2020 than it is 1986. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. Absolutely. But, I mean, she's talking nonsense in church, and he's like, thank you for that. Or when she talks yeah. about the time yeah. that, you know, Sylvester Stallone, or the real, the real Rambo. Real Rambo. Uh, the, the real, real Rambo. Rambo was so in love with her. And, like, Must have saved him 50 times. In yeah. the, and didn't have time for him when she was a hospital worker in Vietnam or whatever it was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, nobody's like, no, you didn't. Yeah, the agreed upon lie. Yeah. This is what you got to live with her. What's the point? Yeah, I guess. Nobody, no, but again, that is the difference between her and John Goodman, uh, is John Goodman is kind of like well-received by most of the characters in the film. 
she's always, I, I think, most graciously received by Ramon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I, I think that, that the husband and wife who don't talk are kind of this, the synthesis of this. There is an agreed upon lie, but the agreement is to just not acknowledge the lie. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's a lot going on in this movie, man. It's surprisingly dense for a uh, eighty-minute music video. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, which is exactly what it is. It's just a humor satire music yeah. video thing. Yeah. When he made a big point of of like, hey, yeah, yeah, again, this is one of the things that I read about David Byrne's kind of like creative process for this. He didn't want it to be like the music videos of the time. He didn't want there to be like some semblance of a narrative slapped on it. He wanted to create something that told the story that you know it, it's not quite a concept album it is a soundtrack to a film mm-hmm. yeah. you know it doesn't exist without the film yeah uh, it is kind of a, an interesting fusion of, of creative endeavors for sure uh that again i think ties back into all these themes that we've talked about for sure for sure um any other last thoughts before we render a verdict no, this feels like a good place to bring it Let's up. render that their verdict. Um, Arthur, what do you say? Shell for trash regarding true stories. Yeah, I think it should go on the shelf. I think it is a bit of an underseen gem. I, I think that just the pure singularity of it as, as a project is fascinating and merits uh, quite a bit of study and, and, and looking at. And so, and I think there'd probably be a lot to grow, uh, gain from a rewatch of it. Uh, so yeah, I would I would go ahead and shelf it. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, right there with Arthur. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is the thing I'm gonna put on my shelf because I would teach this movie because I think one of the things you do as a film studies professor is you have your students see the thing that they haven't seen. Yeah. And so when you're talking about that, you know, David Lynchy kind of quirkiness, or you're talking about those interconnected sort of narratives, a la Magnolia, or you're talking, you know, about a number of Night Valian kind of things. This is a great example of the thing that they have not encountered. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would definitely use this movie in the future. It's it, This movie is like almost it's 13 years ahead of its time. It, yeah. it, it is a 1999 movie before 1999. Correct. It, it is so far ahead of the curve that like it dictates, again, some of that Lynchian stuff we're talking. There's other things in the ether that are doing similar things at the same time. But, yeah, that, that's the benefit of something like this, that it is... Uh, you know, I mean, there's a couple of, you know, Existence or Dark City, you know, a couple of things that were like in the ether before The Matrix. This is kind of another good example of like that 90s end of the Cold War pre 9-11, like calm before the storm is something that David Byrne is already seeing in, in some ways. It's not quite that end of history thing that we talk about a lot in the show, but it is, you know, kind of related. It's getting there for sure. I'm glad we like this so much. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks, Thanks Keith. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, this, this, he's he's just he. What is this? Uh, what was his last? Other than Fallen Angels, uh, what was his last one before that? I can't even. Oh, jeez, it'd be like two years ago. Yeah. Um, probably an anime. That makes sense. But he's remember. like four for four right now. He can't stop. He just keeps giving us good good stuff. Thank yeah, he you. He programs yeah. well. He certainly does. So speaking oh, of programming, I think it was Chinatown. Oh, that's right. It was, it was uh, Fallen Angels Chinatown. This, that's yeah, your Chinatown absolute right. is a very good movie, despite the fact we'll never speak the director's name again. Uh, moving right along, um, I believe in terms of programming, we're going to have another episode. Oh, uh, that's what your contract says. Yeah, okay. you're signed up for another one. Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it rural. Uh, we're going to keep it. Keep it small town. Uh, it's oh. time for our annual Catherine Bigelow watch. Oh, it's time! Uh, it's time! It's time! Boopy. Uh, with a little bit of near dark, uh, it's available on the Criterion Channel right now. So if you want to watch along, uh, jump over there and uh, check it out. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed the an hour and a half long conversation I had with my father about Bill Paxton on Wednesday. Love, hey, Bill so, Paxton's the best. So I'm 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 already there for this. This is a film that has been on the docket for five years. Ever. 
I mean, yeah, it is basically the, from the first time we did a Catherine Bigelow movie, we're like, we got to do Near Dark. Yeah, it's right? this and Blue Still. Yeah, those are the two that we knew we would always get to at some point. Yeah. I'm so excited. Uh, ooh, so ooh. there you go, dear listener. That's what's next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.